0: Voter intimidation is a crime. I'm gonna say that again. Voter intimidation is a crime. It's not okay to show up at a polling place and try to bully somebody out of voting. We are, we are, the youth of the nation. We are, we are, the youth of the nation.
1: You just heard U.S. Senator Martin Heinrich, who will be with us this evening in a special edition of Generation Justice. We are a multiracial project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media. I'm Barbara Ramirez, your host for this evening. Our program is being broadcast on stolen Indigenous land. At Generation Justice, we know how important it is to have youth engaged and be heard by elected officials. We are excited to bring you a roundtable discussion with U.S. Senator Martin Heinrich and four young leaders and organizers. Our youth panel consists of Antonio Garcia, Diana Ramirez, and Carl Gonzalez, all representing Generation Justice. Additionally, we welcome Janelle Astorga-Ramos, our special guest from Learning Alliance of New Mexico and Common Cause New Mexico. The roundtable will be moderated by longtime DJ member Nicole Beatty. Now, we hand it off to Nicole Beatty.
2: I am the moderator for this evening. My name is Nicole Beatty. So, Sin chào Cac Ban, Ban Nicole Beatty. I'm a queer Afro Vietnamese woman. I've been part of Generation Justice since I was 17, so a senior at West Mesa High School. I started off as a youth radio producer and I've moved into roles i showing up for campaigns and I help facilitate and coordinate some youth whenever I have opportunity to do so. I am a 2017-2018 Fulbright Fellow. I had the opportunity to go to Vietnam because my mom's Afro-Vietnamese and it was like a coming of home for me. Behavioral health is a very important part of me and how I exist and within my family. So I show up in community as a crisis interventionalist through a local crisis center. I have a degree in chemical engineering. And so I currently work as a process engineer in biopharmaceuticals, and uh, we're doing actually big things within the COVID virus. So thank you for being here. So now our panelists.
3: Hi, everyone. And hello, Senator. My name is Antonio Garcia, but I go by AJ. I am 20 years old and currently attend the University of New Mexico in my undergrad. The goal is to eventually graduate from UNM with a master's in public administration with either a focus in the nonprofit arena or public policy. My mother's family is originally from Dulce, New Mexico, which is the Hickory Apache Reservation. And my father's family is originally from Mexico City and south of there all the way through northern Guatemala. I'm really happy to be here. And also my pronouns are he, him, his. And I've been with Generation Justice since January of this year. And I currently work as a community liaison. So thank
0: you.
4: Hello, everyone. My name is Gianna Ramirez. I am 14 years old. And I currently attend El Dorado High School here in Albuquerque. I identify as Nuevo Mexicana Chicana. I am second generation Mexican American, and I'm also mixed with indigenous blood on both my mother and my father's side. I was born and raised here in Albuquerque, New Mexico my whole life. My pronouns are she, her, hers. I've been with Generation Justice here for, I would say about a year. And I started off as a youth media producer doing radio, and now I've become a youth media justice apprentice with Generation Justice, so that's been really exciting. I want to just thank everyone here for being here, especially you, Senator, for listening to us, but also answering the questions we have. And I'm really excited to see what everyone has to say.
5: Hi, Senator, and welcome. My name is Kyle Gonzalez. I'm 22 years old, and my pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a queer Nuevo Mexicano Chicano and a recent graduate from the University of New Mexico with a degree in political science and public communication. I'm originally from Farmington, New Mexico, where I started to work with youth at a local community center. And all through my high school and college career, I really enjoyed engaging with youth and that's how I came to work with Generation Justice. I'm really excited to be here and to participate in this roundtable with you today especially because I, one of my first gigs when I actually moved to Albuquerque was working in your Albuquerque office as a congressional intern. So, And a lot of the ideals that I picked up there, I still carry with me. That's I'm great. very excited to speak with you, and thank you so much for being here.
6: Good afternoon, Senator Heinrich. Thank you for being here. My name is Janela Astoria-Ramos, and I was born and raised here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I am 23 years old, so I consider myself a Nuevo Mexicana Chicana. I go by She, Her, Hers, and I've been organizing for about 10 years now. I started when I was 14 years old, and I now am the youth organizer of the Learning Alliance of New Mexico and the Voting Rights Engagement Organizer at Common Cause New Mexico. So thank you so much for having us today.
2: Janelle, thank you for being with us. And now for our special guest this evening, Senator Martin Heinrich. Elected in 2012, he serves on the Senate Energy and Natural Resources, Armed Services, and Intelligence Committee, as well as the Joint Economic Committee. Senator Heinrich also served two terms as the US representative for New Mexico's first congressional district. He served four years as an Albuquerque city councilor where he was elected city council president. Senator Heinrich holds a bachelor's of science in mechanical engineering from the University of Missouri. He and his wife, Julie, have both worked in public service. Welcome to Generation Justice, Senator Heinrich.
0: Thank you so much, Nicole. Um, It is great to be here. And I guess I'll just start real quickly and say my real bio is that um, I was born in 1971 in a family uh, where my mom and my dad just really taught me more than anything else the value of hard work. Uh, My mom was a seamstress when I was a kid. Uh, She made Levi's. Uh, my dad was an IBEW lineman, and neither of them had college degrees, but they were darn sure going to make sure I got one. And um, when I was about ten years old, I learned about climate change for the first time, and I started, you know, studying the world that my dad lived in as somebody who worked in the utility industry, and uh, looking forward to college and studying engineering. In college, I actually joined with a group of my friends and colleagues. And we built in 1992, 1993, a carbon fiber solar car that we raced from Dallas to Minneapolis. And I've sort of been in that mode of activism since my early college years. And I say that because um, I think one of the great advantages that your generation has with all of the incredible crises that your generation and all of us face right now, And whether that is economic or what we're dealing with with COVID, the terrible things we've seen with regard to immigration policy and the racial reckoning we're going through as a country, all of that, I think, has been really incredibly stressful on all of us. And what I've realized is that because when I was growing up and learning to be a leader, learning to be an activist, there weren't those kinds of cataclysmic events going on. It really made my generation, I think, think very incrementally. So we were kind of straightjacketed into, well, can we move the needle a little bit this year? And when I see your generation and when I see my own kids that, you know, who are 14 and 17, they have made sort of leapfrogged ahead in terms of what they expect this great country to be. And whether it's talking about climate or whether it's talking about human rights or equality or economic equity, I think more is possible right now than at any point in my lifetime. And as, as someone who occupies a seat in the United States Senate and understands like what a privilege that is, I actually think the opportunities that I'm seeing right now to really make change are directly the result of what all of you have been doing in the streets, on blogs, everywhere else, uh, in these kinds of conversations in the last few years, to really make the world of the possible more what it should be, instead of accepting the way it is today. And so it's really my pleasure to join you for this conversation. And I'm looking forward to learning a lot more.
2: Thank you, we appreciate you for that and for giving us a little bit more deeper insight into your bio. Um, So now um, let's get into the youth-led questions. And first up is Antonio Garcia.
3: So Senator, COVID-19 has disproportionately affected marginalized communities, especially indigenous peoples. My question to you is beyond the CARES Act, what is being done to support tribes economically or otherwise? as
0: we prepare for a second year of this pandemic? Yeah, I think when all of this started, we thought things might be a little better by now. And it's, uh, it's been a tough year. I will tell you, AJ, um, that I've, I've lost tribal friends and mentors to this virus. And I think that's a perspective. When I talk to a lot of my colleagues, it's shocking how many of them don't know someone first person who has, has necessarily passed away. And it, it just brings home the challenges that we face in tribal communities and in lots of underrepresented communities in New Mexico and the fundamental things that we need to fix to be able to be in a better position. One of the things I really fought for in the response to COVID was to include tribes directly so that indigenous communities would have access to funds without having to go to the state and make an application, or to go to the, some federal agency. Like These are sovereign nations that should be able to receive that aid directly. And that may seem like a really simple thing, but I will tell you it's something that in particular the, the majority leadership and Mitch McConnell did not agree with. We had to fight very hard to make that possible. And then we had to fight over what constituted a federally recognized tribe. So it is not, you know, for being 2020, fighting for these communities is still an uphill battle. One of the things that I believe is that fundamental investments in infrastructure are one of the things that we have to do if we're going to make this right in the future. Because if you don't start with the fundamentals, if you don't have the water system or the same access to the electric grid, or today, you know, broadband, how do you go to school if you don't have a good internet connection and way too many New Mexicans of all stripes don't have a good internet connection. So one of the things that we're focused on today is finding ways to fix those infrastructure problems and to hopefully lay the groundwork so that in a new administration, my hope is that one of the first things that a new administration will try to move on is infrastructure and making sure that our communities have a seat at the table and a real chance to sort of level set when for too long they haven't had the basic infrastructure that other communities got in the 1920s or the 1930s.
3: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Senator. And I definitely really think that we need to avoid any delays in getting this support out to tribes who really need it. So thank you again, Senator.
2: Thank you, Senator, for your response. And next up, we have Gianna Ramirez
4: so my question for you is on climate change we know the trump administration's stance of denying climate change and the harm that has done so how will the senate ensure that climate change is a top priority and that the lands in this nation are protected for the future so to kind of clarify i'm asking you to elaborate more on these two scenarios so if vice president biden wins but democrats do not pick up the senate Or if Democrats win the Senate while President Trump stays in office?
0: I think one of the things that we need to shift on in the Senate, and and frankly, this answer will require Democratic majority control of the Senate, is the pivot from ignoring or denying what's clearly right in front of us and impacting all of us every day to not only a recognition, but making it a priority. Climate shouldn't be number 13 on the priority list. It needs to be in the top with healthcare and with economic justice and climate should be baked in. And one of the reasons why I say that is because when you do that, climate is no longer, it's no longer an argument just about what your energy policy is going to be. It really comes up in the context of every major piece of legislation. So when you pass a spending bill, an appropriations bill for transportation, It's talking about how do we clean up our transportation system? How do we electrify it? How do we move away from polluting sources of energy to clean sources of energy in that context? And we have to do that with our infrastructure bills, our energy bills, our land use bills, because many of the solutions that we're gonna have for how we solve climate change are how we reinforce natural systems that sequester carbon, and how do we do the human systems like our agriculture better? I mean, we've been mining the soil for 100 years in this country, and we make up for that by synthetically created fertilizers, by pesticides, when we could be practicing a form of regenerative agriculture that every year pulls more carbon dioxide out of the air, puts it in the roots of those plants, and some of that stays in the soil. So I think climate change has to be a part of a conversation of all of these things, not only climate policy and energy policy, but why we should in the first place protect some of these sacred landscapes.
4: Yes, thank you for that. And are there any other scenarios that could impact how climate change is addressed? So as you mentioned, yeah. a Democratic control of the Senate will obviously help with these. But if the Democrats were not to control the Senate, what would that look like if the Republicans were to?
0: It all impacts sort of what is the envelope of the possible. And I think at a moment like this, I'm hopeful that we'll control the Senate because I I think we need pretty big change, not so much incremental change. But even now, when I'm in the minority, I have conversations and I've worked with members, Republican members of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee to pass legislation and to tee up legislation that will do good things on climate. One of the things I would point to is, I've had a long history of crafting bipartisan legislation around energy storage. Today, just this week, the International Energy Agency, which is a a world body that has been, frankly, very conservative about how fast we could change, very rooted in fossil fuel politics, I would say. They announced that solar energy is now the cheapest electricity that has ever been generated on the planet today, worldwide, not just here in the United States. But we need to be able to move that solar energy from two o'clock in the afternoon to six o'clock at night when people come home and throw on their swamp cooler or their air conditioner. And energy storage is the secret sauce to make that happen. And so you know, even with a majority Republican uh, Senate, I've been able to work on legislation that I think has a very good chance of passing to fix that piece of the climate puzzle that isn't quite so partisan.
4: Yes, thank you for that response and that very, very important information. Thank
2: you, Gianna, for that question. Um, And next up, we have Kyle
5: Gonzalez. Thank you so much, Nicole, and thank you again, Senator. As you saw firsthand during her confirmation hearing, we've learned a lot about Amy Coney Barrett and her ideals. So what I'm wondering is, what's being done proactively in the senate and congress to protect the most vulnerable of our country and new mexico from a conservative supreme court majority i think
0: one it puts us in a position where things that we were had previously left up to the courts to interpret clearly need federal law to spell out to protect us from a negative interpretation from the court and it also means we're going to have to step up and pass laws that don't just rely on regulation from the executive to get to say a clean power plan or uh, a regulation of a given pollutant. It's now gonna be on Congress to say, okay, that chemical causes cancer and we're not gonna trust the EPA to do something about that and then trust the court to uphold that. We're gonna write a law that says we're not gonna sell this anymore. We're not going to allow people to buy this anymore. And so it really does put a lot more onus on the Congress to do what is right. And I think it opens up the issue of whether or not the filibuster is really something that is productive anymore and whether or not that is potentially going to be holding us back from making some very basic decisions that are staring us in the face here and now.
5: Yeah, I definitely agree. And I know that that's a very hotly contested issue among you and your colleagues. So you support getting rid of the filibuster?
0: So I will tell you, historically, I thought the filibuster was really important in order to create bipartisanship in the Senate. And what has changed in my view over time is that more and more it has become a tool for a minority to overcome the will of the majority. And I don't mean that in the traditional sense of a minority community that has been without power, but rather a minority that has the power trying to hold on to that inertia and not allow a more diverse population in the United States have the seat at the table that equality really demands. And so I've seen the filibuster at its best And I've also now seen it in the last couple of years, in the last four years in particular at its worst. And I think in order to meet the scale of the the changes that we're gonna need to make on social justice issues to make sure that every vote counts equally in this country, which I think you could ask the residents of uh, Washington, DC, whether they feel like their votes count equally. In order to fix any of those challenges, I think we have to look really seriously at ending the filibuster.
5: And Senator, I'd like to just bring it to a more current and pressing issue. Just in the scenario that we have a contested election, what would be the role of both the Senate and the Supreme Court in that situation to make sure that that process remains transparent and democratic?
0: Well, the Senate's role would largely be one of oversight. And given the fact that the Senate doesn't have a legal role between the time that votes are cast and when they're counted, a number of us got together in a committee to really talk about, okay, we've always been able to just assume a peaceful transition in the past and assume that these things would work themselves out either at the ballot box or at the courts interpreting what happened at the ballot box. And we really planned for a much more tumultuous election this time, the kind of which you might see, you know, in countries that don't have 240 years of democratic history. And we tried to reduce as much risk in this situation as possible, given the fact that we have 50 different states with 50 different election laws. And to make sure that we had plans for what if you see voter intimidation? And we have in our state, how do we push back on that? How do we make sure that we have hotlines in place to the Secretary of State if someone shows up, brandishing a weapon at a polling place, all those sorts of things that can go sideways. But if, you just, if you're ready and you have the conversations ahead of time with law enforcement and with local leaders, you can deal with, but if you just leave it to chance, could spiral into something worse. We just did a lot of scenario planning to think about what to be ready for. And one of the things that we realized that we really needed to prepare for is that because some states like Pennsylvania are not ready to count their absentee ballots on election day, by law, they can't process them. In other words, take the ballots out of the envelope, verify the voter. They're not going to know their real tallies probably for a day, two days. It could be many days. And so preparing people for the fact that this will not, if it's a close race, be decided on election night that's okay that's happened many times in our nation's history what matters is does every vote count and so making sure that we have the social pressure in place and the preparation to make sure that in all of those states nobody gets to declare victory until we actually know what all the votes say and i think that's really incredibly important to recognize that you know if florida say goes for joe biden on election night we'll know that the election's over, but if it doesn't, all of those other states that don't allow absentee ballots to be prepared and fully counted right away, we're gonna be waiting for those to come in. What matters is that they get counted and they get counted accurately.
5: Thank you so much, Senator, and you brought up so many important points in that, and I thank you so much for that answer.
2: And now we're gonna be looking at voters and voter protection. Janelle Estorga-Ramos.
6: Thank you all. Thank you, Nicole. Like I mentioned before, I'm actually a guest on this panel. I'm with the Learning Alliance of New Mexico and also Common Cause New Mexico. So thank you, Kyle, for kind of transitioning that right into the question that I'm about to ask. So thank you, Senator. Going back to the points that AJ made around COVID-19, we know that COVID-19 has disproportionately impacted voters of color. How do you plan to legislatively protect the right to vote for all eligible voters?
0: I think we need to pass a Modern Voting Rights Act. And I got the incredible honor of getting to serve in the House of Representatives with John Lewis, who is a good case study for how to approach these things. And I think in addition to to passing legislation that really ensures that people, their right to vote is respected, we also have to, on a case-by-case basis, just get into the weeds to protect everyone who wants to vote where there's someone standing in their way. I think it's important to say this, voter intimidation is a crime. I'm gonna say that again. Voter intimidation is a crime. It's not okay to show up at a polling place and try to bully somebody out of voting. But in addition, it's things like making sure that there's a drop box in a community. You know, I've been working in one of the tribal communities to get a drop box in a community where they're a long way from the nearest polling place. So there are lots of different things we can be doing, and especially in the context of such a, to say that this is the most important election of my lifetime, I think doesn't do it justice. I think we need to be doing all of the above.
6: Thank you, Senator. And can you speak a little bit more to that? I know recently in this election, places like Cibola County, where they only have one, polling place that has been shut down due to things like internet access and, um, you know, preparations for COVID-19 and keeping with the CDC guidelines. Do you see any plans that other counties may have for election day when it comes to things like this?
0: One of the things we've tried to do is to get people to vote early or absentee in person so that the polls are not overwhelmed on election day. And the good news is we've been pretty successful at that. We have just record numbers of people who have already voted. And every one of those is someone who isn't going to have to stand in line for hours and hours on election day. I think, you know, we've worked with the Secretary of State's office and with the entire elected leadership of the state just to try and make sure that everything goes as smoothly as possible. And that, um, you know, along the way, for example, it's going to be really important that if someone is under quarantine, that they can use the provisions under the law to have someone pick up their ballot and deliver it to the county clerk that can certify that under penalty of perjury that that person has a medical emergency, but they are a legitimate voter and their vote should count. And so It's really in a lot of these nitty gritty details and jumping into voter protection efforts of which, you know, once again, I'm an engineer, not an attorney. That's not my forte, but I've got a great team here who really does make that their focus, even if it's like reaching out to the district attorneys and reminding them that it's their job to hold people accountable if there is voter intimidation.
6: Thank you so much, Senator. I think you hit on a lot of the points that many of us are worried about and working on and... I think a lot of the information that you shared, not a lot of people know. So I appreciate you sharing that with us today. Thank you. Senator
2: Heimrich, we have a few minutes, and I know you're interested in hearing some input from our panelists. So I would like to open up the floor for you to ask your questions.
0: Fantastic. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I guess for me, origin stories are, are really important. It really tells me a lot about someone to know sort of where they come from. So I'm curious for each of of you, how did you come to be a leader in your community? How did you come to be an activist within Generation Justice? And what are the issues that really make you want to lean in and make a difference?
6: I can start that off if nobody um, wants to go. So
0: um,
6: like I mentioned, I've been organizing for about 10 years now. I actually started when I was 14 years old with an organization called Young Women United, or now they're Bold Futures, and that was working around reproductive justice rights. And really, what made me stick with community organizing was because I grew up in San Jose, the neighborhood of San Jose in Albuquerque, um, very low income and environmentally unjust neighborhood. So um, when I was growing up, I was kind of like a bad kid. And those organizations really helped me see that there's different paths, right? Different ways to create change in your community. And really, gave me a voice and uplifted who I was and made me see myself as a leader. So throughout high school, I actually helped co-lead the park walkouts at Albuquerque High School, which then helped me get more involved in organizations such as the Southwest Organizing Project. And from there, I really found my passion within education and youth rights. So now I'm one of the lead organizers, youth organizers at the Learning Alliance of New Mexico, and actually have co-founded an organization with Jonathan Alonzo, who's one of the observers here in the call. Um, Our organization is called Youth Voices in Action, or VIA, and we focus on giving students, middle school and high school students, advocacy and leadership skills so that they can run campaigns inside of their schools to create their own change. So yeah, that's something that really fuels me and makes me keep going is just that I know that my community has my back and that they see a leader in me as much as I see it in them.
0: That's awesome, Janelle. Thank you. I'd love to go next if that's okay. So
3: again, my name is Antonio Garcia or AJ, and I actually am originally from Denver, Colorado and was born and raised in Denver, Colorado and went to Denver Public Schools. So it wasn't until high school that I really started organizing and I organized within Denver Public Schools and organized with a group called the Young African American and Latino Leaders or Y'all. And we were born out of a report published by Dr. Sharon Bailey, who was an educator within Denver Public Schools. And the report detailed the opportunity gap or the achievement gap, as some people call it, between students of color and white and Asian students, and also detailed the retention that DPS has on students of color, as well as educators of color. So really, it detailed a lot of the school-to-prison pipeline. So that's really where I started organizing was around the school to prison pipeline within Denver Public Schools. And what a lot of the work was, was educating educators on implicit and explicit biases and racism within classrooms that can, you know, really add to a lot of the stressors that make dropout rates high for so many black indigenous people of color students. Um, I eventually graduated and moved on to, UNM and well, actually, I first went to New Mexico State University, and then transitioned over to University of New Mexico, and started organizing out of my own community in Denver with my own youth council, and now with some other young community members, we've organized the Unity Among Nations Youth Council, which organizes predominantly in Denver, Colorado, but all throughout the Southwest is really where we're focused on. So we've even done some organizing here within New Mexico, and even on my reservation, on the Navajo Nation Reservation, we've been delivering food and different resources during the pandemic, as well as trying to get a lot of people prepared for the winter by delivering chainsaws to cut down trees for firewood and so on. So that's a little bit about
0: what drives me and my passion. That's awesome. That's fantastic. I assume, though, given where you grew up, you always knew that New Mexico, Chile was clearly superior to Colorado. (laughs) That is a hot debate. I think we're going to have to do
3: another panel discussion on that one.
5: I can go next. I think for me, what really spurred me to become a leader, and I I think I'm kind of growing into that role of viewing myself as a leader, um, is like I said, I got my start in Farmington working at the Sycamore Park Community Center. And there, um, I had the pleasure to work with a lot of Black, Indigenous, and people of color youth, and um, a lot of specifically undocumented youth. And I think that in engaging with undocumented youth is where I saw a lot of lacking policy in our country, because I often had to engage with youth who, you know, as a worker, I would often hear, oh, well, somebody at my house beat me up. That's why I have bruises. But I can't tell you because I know you're a mandatory reporter and my family's undocumented. And so if somebody shows up, I don't know who's going to end up having to leave. And hearing just a lot of stories like that of youth being in bad situations or having to limit themselves because they were worried about how policy would affect them and affect their family, affect their siblings. And I think that as I grew, I started to see that policy and narrative are very linked. And that's how I came to work for GJs because a lot of the policies that are passed through Washington are based off of the narratives that we tell both interpersonally and in the media. And if you look at who tells them who is engaged in the media, it's not people of color, and if it is people of color, they're working as journalists, they're not working as people of power in newsrooms. And so I think that I've been really spurred to um, take up more responsibility working with DJ because a lot of what we do is giving youth journalists the practical skills that they need so that they can't be told in newsrooms, you don't have the qualification to be given power. You don't have the qualification to decide how your story is gonna be told because oftentimes that's what we see is people of color stories being told By white people who don't understand their lived experience. And youth of color, people of color everywhere suffer for it. And so I used to really be a follower, but I know that making change in our society that is gonna work for everybody calls on everybody in different ways. And so I'm so happy to have taken on responsibility with GJ and to be, be able to consider myself a youth leader now. There's no going back, Kyle.
4: So just to kind of, I guess, bring me up to now, I'm, as I said, I'm only 14. So I owe a lot of what I've learned so far um, of the leader I am becoming to my parents and my family. My parents were both born here. Well, actually, my father was born in L.A. He was born here in the United States, though. But my grandparents on his side actually immigrated here from Mexico. My grandparents on my mother's side grew up very poor. I actually have ancestors on my mother's side who were disowned from their native tribe due to marriage. So they've really informed me about my ancestors and about their experiences of growing up poor and in the middle of the 80s with Chicana and Chicano culture all around them. And so I owe a lot of what I know about my identity to them just through what they've taught me. They're both social workers. So these issues, I guess you could say, the things that surround us as problems every day, I've kind of been aware of since a young age. And I'm thankful for that because it's allowed me kind of take that like fighting role now that I'm a little bit older, but I owe a lot of my leadership now and who I'm becoming to Generation Justice. I walked into Generation Justice, crazy to think it was only a year ago, not knowing what my identity is. And now, as you guys heard earlier, I introduce myself and I know how to introduce myself. I know my identity. And so I think through this, I've not only learned what leadership is, but how to change that narrative that like young people don't care or young people aren't aware and taking that narrative and shifting it to like empower myself. And I think that's kind of how generation justice works. And I think in general, a lot of the things going on now reflects with the work we do and reflects with kind of shaping us and molding us as a group. But we each have our own like abilities, our own strengths, and we're each becoming our own person. And so, yeah, with this summer, with this year, I've been in Generation Justice almost this whole pandemic. That was a majority of my time here. And so getting to shape my time here as a way of growth, bringing what my parents have taught me For being 14, I am proud to say that I feel very aware of the things going on as I do live in an area that is majority white. I go to a school where sometimes I am the only person of color in a class. And so I think just taking different experiences and, of course, my ancestors with me, as Generation Justice has also taught me, empowers each of us and for me has kind of shaped me to be more understanding. And learn that I can use my voice, which I would not be here today without the help of these amazing people on this call and who aren't able to be here.
0: That's great. I guess what I would say is it is conversations like this one. Sometimes I hear people who are pessimistic about the future of this country. And if you have a job like mine and you get to have conversations with some of the incredible youth leadership in New Mexico, and for that matter, across the country, you can't help but be optimistic. And um, I just feel really lucky to be able to have this conversation with each of you, to be able to learn from you, and to be able to take some of that back to Washington and try to make a difference with a, a little bit different perspective than my colleagues because of what I've
5: learned here.
2: I am so grateful for this wonderful discussion. Unfortunately, our time has come to an end. Thank you, Senator Heimrich and your amazing staff for this time you have spent with these young leaders. We appreciate your thoughtful responses to our questions. And thank you to our panelists, Janelle Astorga-Ramos, our guest from Learning Alliance of New Mexico and Common Cause New Mexico, and our Generation Justice members, Antonio Garcia, Gianna Ramirez, and Kyle Gonzalez. Your questions were insightful and are so helpful for our continued community dialogue. I'm Nicole Beatty, and it was an honor to moderate this amazing roundtable.
1: Thank you, Senator Heinrich, for prioritizing time to speak with us. You mentioned that there are people who are pessimistic, but because you get to have these conversations with youth, you feel optimistic. Please know that tonight, seeing you, a US senator listening to us as youth, makes me feel optimistic and hopeful too. Thank you to our panelists, Antonio Garcia, Diana Ramirez, Kyle Gonzalez, and Danielle Astorga-Ramos for being great leaders in our community. I also want to thank Nicole Beatty for moderating this amazing roundtable. This next song was chosen by Kyle Gonzalez. It's by the great late Nina Simone. Here is, I wish I knew how it would feel to be free.
6: I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me. I wish I could say.